Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, episode 14. As promised, Titus. Let's get up to speed with him. Eldest son, first child of Vespasian, Titus is one of the strangest characters to come out of the first century. Or rather, let's say the written record is one of the most contradictory. Suetonius, in his biography of the first twelve Caesars, refers to him as Amor et Deliciae Generis Humani, delight and darling of the human race. Strong words. Suetonius goes on, Such surpassing ability had he, by nature, art, or good fortune, to win the affections of all men, and that too, which is no easy task, while he was emperor. On the other hand, he also writes, As a private citizen, and even during his father's rule, he did not escape hatred, much less public criticism. We know that he was born in what is described as a mean house and near the Septizonium, and in a very small dark room besides, of where it still remains and is on exhibition. That is, near the southeast corner of the Palatine Hill, near one end of the Circus Maximus. Not too bad a part of town at the time. Interesting that Suetonius seems to want to downplay it. Presumably because of good services Vespasian had done Claudius in Britain, the boy Titus was schooled in the imperial household along with Claudius's son Britannicus, if not with Claudius's stepson, the slightly older Nero. There may have been others, but no one interesting enough for Suetonius to mention. When Claudius died, Britannicus was not yet fourteen, Nero all of sixteen. Nero managed to finagle the throne, or rather, others finagle it for him, possibly his mother, possibly others, with or without her knowledge. Speculation abounds. But as Britannicus was the natural-born son, and reportedly a bright and steady sort of person, there was said to be a faction that wanted him rather than Nero as princeps. Britannicus would come of age on February 12th of AD 55. Nero arranged a pre-birthday party for immediate family and close friends on February 11. Among the friends was Titus. What a dismal party that must have been. Britannicus, recall, had just lost his father not four months before. His mother, Messalina, had been executed for treason in AD 48, and relations with his new stepmother, Nero's mother, Britannicus's first cousin, it was complicated, were uncertain. At some point in the proceedings, Britannicus drank from a cup of cooled wine and went into convulsions. Nero shrugged and said it was epilepsy, which, fair enough, this did run in the family, most famously in Julius Caesar. If so, however, it is one of the rare instances of a fatal seizure, and at such an interesting moment. Britannicus was pronounced dead, and Nero's position was assured. As to Titus, we read that he drank too from the presumably poisoned chalice and also fell sick, but he got better. If you think that the addition of Titus to the story sounds a little over the top, well, you wouldn't be the first. The Flavians made it part of their public relations campaign to stress their connection to the virtuous Claudius 
and the tragically cheated Britannicus. Titus had commemorative coins minted of various Julio-Claudians, including Claudius and Britannicus. A nun featuring Nero or his mother have ever turned up. Bear in mind that none of the Julio-Claudian emperors were direct offspring of their predecessors. Titus, in following Vespasian, would be a first. Best to point out Rome's misfortune that the natural-born Britannicus did not live and rule instead of Nero. And just to make sure that Titus was a foreordained leader, we read again from Suetonius, who tells us of the time when a physiognomist was brought into the classroom to check in on the young Britannicus. Whatever else he may have determined, he did just say that Britannicus would never be emperor, which could be good or bad news depending on how one interpreted it. But who is this? Titus, you say? Son of the general Vespasian? Extraordinary. Why, I don't like to speak out of turn, but this boy has all the markings of greatness, leadership even, dare I say it, imperial leadership. Yes, no doubt about it, one day this boy will rule. Sure, go ahead. It's not as if everyone else wasn't piling on board. Suetonius again. Even in boyhood, his bodily and mental gifts were conspicuous, and they became more and more so as he advanced in years. He had a handsome person, in which there was no less dignity than grace, and was uncommonly strong, although he was not tall of stature and had rather a protruding belly. His memory was extraordinary, and he had an aptitude for almost all the arts, both of war and of peace. Skillful in arms and horsemanship, he made speeches and wrote verse in Latin and Greek with ease and readiness, and even offhand. He was besides not unacquainted with music, but sang and played the harp agreeably and skillfully. I have heard from many sources that he used also to write shorthand with great speed, and would amuse himself by playful contests with his secretaries. Also that he could imitate any handwriting that he had ever seen, and often declared that he might have been the prince of forgers. Bear that last part in mind. It's Chekhov's gun on the mantelpiece. And his CV? He served as military tribune both in Germany and in Britain, winning a high reputation for energy and no less integrity, as is evident from the great number of his statues and busts in those provinces and from the inscriptions they bear. For his initial time in the army, we have the confirmation of Pliny the Elder, who served with him in Germany and dedicated his natural history to him. The numerous statues and busts, and the inscriptions that they bear, are largely lost to time. Funny, that. Back in Rome, he practiced law, as one did back then, for reputation rather than for money. Up the cursus honorum, an advantageous marriage, a daughter who lived, a wife who died, a second marriage, then a divorce when her family became politically suspect. His stroll along the Cursus Honorum took an unexpected turn by a letter from his father, who had just been given command of the Roman army in Judea, and asked that Titus, now commander of a legion in Egypt, join him in the good fight. The record begins to turn darker. It will come as no surprise that Jewish tradition takes a harder view of the man, 
He and his legions set forth for Caesarea, where he met and fell for the Jewish princess Berenice. She was the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. Her father, Herod Agrippa, a younger twig of the family tree, charming, entitled, lazy, lucky, both good and bad, but always in the extremes, led his family a pillar to post-life. Herod the Great had executed his father, and the boy had grown up in the household of Antonia Minor, mother of Claudius, a grandmother of Caligula, friend to all three. He had the social standing, but not the money, which led to an adult life of expecting privilege, but a disinclination to work beneath his station. He borrowed money, large amounts of money, more than he could repay. His lowest point came in AD 37, when the Emperor Tiberius refused to spring him from debtor's prison. But in the frustrating way that some people always turn up roses, our hero soon heard that Tiberius had died, and his old friend, and fellow spendthrift, Caligula was now emperor. Our hero was not only released from prison, but appointed Rome's client king of Judea, a position taken up later by his son, Berenice's brother, Herod Agrippa II. They were close, Berenice and her brother, close enough to spark rumors of incest. She had been married off at age 13 or 15 to Marcus, a son of Alexander, head of the Jewish community in Alexandria, and born two sons. And when her husband died, she was married again to her uncle, the king of Chalcus. When he died, her brother was named king. She retained the title queen. One more marriage followed. Palamo, king of Cilicia. She insisted the suitor would convert assuming, presumably, that the requirement of circumcision would put him off. It did not. The marriage failed regardless. She returned to live with her brother in Caesarea, near modern Tel Aviv, and when the rebellion broke out in Jerusalem, they were positioned to discuss matters with both Romans and Jews. Which is not to say that she had turned her back on her people or her faith. Far from it. She was in Jerusalem for a private religious obligation, herself shaven-headed and barefoot, when one of the early flames of rebellion sparked. An excessively cranky Roman commander was downtown, disciplining civilians with brute force. Berenice interrupted her obligation to talk to him in person, telling him to knock it off. This was at no small personal risk, be it noted. The effort failed, but she had tried, and her mere trying did only good for her reputation. Except perhaps among the rebels, that is. These men were wed to an unconditional surrender mindset. They were also squabbling with co-religionists, going so far as to assassinate Jews who did not subscribe to their view of Judaism. Zealots have entered the language... Worse were Sicarii, knife men, who entered crowded places, shivved their enemies, then disappeared in the confusion. Compromise with each other was already not happening. Compromise with the Romans was out of the question. And so, Berenice and her brother and her two sons eventually removed to their seaside villa in Caesarea, 
where in AD 68 she first met Titus, and he her. She was reportedly beautiful, unlike Cleopatra, no portraits exist, and he was handsome. Many portraits exist. You can find pictures online and decide for yourself. Standards of beauty change over time. A modern American might argue that he looked like a slightly more cruel Al Capone. She was 11 years older than Titus, but there was a quick meeting of the minds. You can see how it could have happened. Both were, by birth, part of a very restricted circle of the clever and the fortunate. Their circle of equals was limited, to say the least. And, of course, the son of the commanding general is not an unreasonable person to cultivate in her circumstances. The atmosphere in Judea and in Rome was tense. Her father, the wastrel, had shown her what can happen to those who back the wrong horse. That question became crucial in the following year, AD 69, crisis year, the year of four emperors, discussed in episode three. The Jewish rebellion was put on hold, Vespasian waiting on word from Rome. To recap, AD 68 to AD 69, another small revolt, this one in Gaul, metastasized. Nero lost the confidence of the Senate and committed suicide. The governor of Spain, the querulous Galba, declared himself emperor and moved on Rome, where he was acclaimed by the Senate. In short order, he was assassinated by Otho, his one-time ally and a one-time friend of Nero. Otho, in turn, was faced with an army of invading German troops loyal to Caligula's old friend Vitellius. Otho took up arms, fought, lost once, then a second time, then committed suicide, leaving Rome to Vitellius. Vitellius proved cruel and greedy and gluttonous, not a good steward of empire. It took some weeks for news of the sequence of event to reach the East and men wishing to be on the right side of history. There is no right side of history, there's only history, but never mind that for now. Found decision-making difficult. When Galba had been acclaimed emperor, Titus, along with Herod Agrippa, sailed from Caesarea to congratulate the newly inflated emperor, only to find, when halfway there, that he was the old boss. What to do? His successor, Otho, had lost his wife to Nero. The Flavians had been appointed by Nero. Did Titus really want this interview just now? Best to see, perhaps, how his uncle, Vespasian's older brother Sabinus, urban prefect under Nero, but not under Galba, made out. They agreed that Herod Agrippa should continue on while Titus returned east to confer with Vespasian. The world waited for news. In time, a word came from Rome of the elevation of Vitellius. On the upside, Sabinus had been restored as urban praetor, basically mayor, so that was encouraging. On the downside, the men surrounding Vitellius were bad lots, not good for Rome, and Vitellius himself was only interested in gluttony and excess. By now, many who knew Vespasian well thought that he would be a better emperor than any of the three on offer. A steady temper will have had something to do with this. Even in warfare, he was not one for dramatic, bloody battle, 
but rather for slow and steady strangulation of isolated towns or cities, the breaking of which involved little in the way of rancor or recrimination. He was a good administrator, and, more to the point, not crazy. His own ambitions were probably no greater than they had been when his mother pushed him onto the cursus honorum back in the day. Assuming that that was not a made-up story intended to show Vespasian as another Julius Caesar refusing the temptations of power, it's a common enough trope. Whether true in this case or not, well... With or without his knowledge, his hand was forced when Berenice's old in-laws in Alexandria declared Egypt's loyalty to the new man Vespasian. A risky move, but one that shows just how much Vitellius and his crew unnerved the provinces. Egypt was the personal domain of any emperor, and provided a great deal of the grain on which Rome depended. Alexandria's rebellion was a direct and personal slap of Vitellius. News of this must have spread across the Mediterranean, and the population of Alexandria could reasonably expect an imperial flotilla to appear from Rome in exact punishment. It didn't happen. Vitellius, indifferent or suffering from procrastination, did nothing. As weeks passed, what kind of conclusion could the rest of the world make? Vitellius was weak, ripe for removal. If there were any fence-sitters about, they now had a stronger case for backing the Flavians. Unknown is whether Titus had anything to do with this precipitate move. It's possible, even likely, but personally risky. Still in the Rome of Vitellius was Vespasian's teenage son Domitian, as well as his brother, restored to the rank of urban prefect. Some locals wanted him to replace Vitellius as emperor. Hostages to fortune once Flavian armies began to march on Italy. Sabinus was, in fact, able to work out a peaceful transfer of power. But Vitellius's more militant supporters quashed that idea. By December AD 69, Vitellius was alive, Sabinus, that agreeable chatterbox, a far better man than the dissipated Vitellius ever was, was not. The war had become personal. The death of Sabinus, and a narrow escape of Domitian and cousins, was of course a family matter of no consequence to outsiders, but it wasn't hard to see that the Flavian father and son team were steadier allies for the Herodian siblings than Vitellius could be. Between them and the governor of Syria, Mucianus, a strong supporter of Vespasian, these could rally a good number of legions that could, under the right management, take on and defeat the now-settled Vitellius. Which is how things went. The new invading force gathered steam as it went along, and eventually got to the gates of the city and took it. Vespasian himself had relocated to Egypt, working his undoubted charm on the local population, and after some months in which Rome was cleared of troublemakers, returned to take his place as leader of the empire. Meanwhile, the war in Judea again turned hot, now under the command of Titus. His style was more aggressive than his father's, and it was left to him to take down Jerusalem proper. Not an easy nut to crack. Titus spent months in the effort needed to break the walls, 
and having breached them, to enter and keep the subsection of the city under his control. Jerusalem, like modern seagoing vessels, had self-contained quarters separated by strong walls and small gates. If one quarter fell to an invading enemy, the remainder could seal themselves off. At the time, each section was home to squabbling, quarreling factions, chiefly extremists, those zealots and Sicarii, who initially had little to agree upon, and so held different quarters of the city. Jews fought bravely and well, and exploits of Titus. He fired twelve arrows in succession, killing twelve men who stood in the way of his assault through a fresh breach, strain at credulity. The locals would not surrender, and so the city's slow but total destruction was inevitable. The whole story makes for grim reading. The arguably accidental burning of the temple, soldiers rooting out leaders in the tunnels and drains beneath the city, the death of thousands, the dismantling of the city until only the western wall, the Wailing Wall, was left standing, and that only because detritus tossed from above effectively buried it. For Titus, there followed a victory tour of the adjoining regions, Titus, with Berenice at his side, headed north by boat, stopping at all major cities to assure the locals that Rome was back and that a sane man was in charge. It seems to have worked. He notably discouraged anti-Jewish acts among the Greeks in Antioch, much to everyone's surprise. The war was over. Time to cement Flavian rule. Time to move on. In AD 71, he was called home for the triumph. Finishing a long and bloody war on behalf of the Empire always makes a would-be emperor look good. The triumph was nice, but secondary to his new official titles. Titus was named consul, but more importantly, Praetorian prefect, commander of the Praetorian Guard, Rome's homeland security force, if you like. If the Julio-Claudian dynasty proved anything, it was that this crew had veto power over any would-be emperor. The post traditionally went to an equestrian, balance of power or some such, but Vespasian wasn't taking any chances. He needed someone he could trust absolutely to keep these men in line. Not that Titus was a bad choice, given his CV and personality. He was a proven soldier and a charismatic leader and a ruthless tactician, just the sort of man a military police crew could get behind. For all the blarney about his being a nice guy, and even if Suetonius was unmoved by what were, to modern eyes, war crimes in Judea, his Roman tenure throughout the 70s seems to have been one of a man who, if not mad, was at least bad and dangerous to know. Suetonius again. He was suspected also of a riotous lifestyle because he also prolonged his carousing with the most extravagant of his friends, nor any less because of his lust on account of his lock of favorite boys and eunuchs. He was suspected of greed because it was well known that in the judicial proceedings of his father he would traffic in rewards and influence. In short, people both thought and openly declared he would be another Nero. More on that in part two, which will cover the rest of the 70s and get us up to date. The Flavians in general, and Vespasian in particular, should have been a relief for Rome, 
but no ruler can satisfy everyone, and this family is no exception. There were to be many complications and twists and turns in politics in the Flavian personal lives, all of which would come to a head by April of 79. In the meantime, if you care to throw money in the hat, there is that donation button. If money is short, spreading the word would be appreciated. As always, thank you for listening.